Week 7 of the war between Israel and Hamas hostage deal and ceasefire were set to begin on Thursday morning. Last-minute delay changes plans, and we will hear about Jonathan's assignment in Israel. I'm waiting to hear all about that. It's Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London, but this week in Tel Aviv. It's unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast, quite literally so, because we are here in HQ, Keshet Media Towers. It's a very different experience. Normally, we are far away from each other, Yonit, but now we are just across a couple of uh, white desks, and it's been quite a week in, well, for me personally, but obviously for this story, a big week. Yeah. And uh, we will get into your story because I'm real. it's, it's, uh, you've been here for a few days. I'm really waiting to hear about all your thoughts and experiences. Um, you really have been saving it for the podcast. But before we get into that, uh, we will talk about what has been going on because we were really waiting for the beginning of, uh, ceasefire. 10 a.m. Thursday today was supposed to uh, take hold a uh, four-day truce and during which the uh, 50 hostages, Israeli hostages, were to be released in batches, including children and their mothers that have been held uh, by Hamas for 48 days. I mean, we should just pause on that for a second, you know, just to think about the fact that the category that Israel demanded, and rightfully so, obviously, was first release the children and their mothers. But think of the fact that there are children and fathers held by Hamas. So the Bibas family, right, for example, uh, Kfir and Ariel, the children, Kfir is 10 months old, uh, the mother is Shiri, under these categories, they would to be released, uh, be released, and Idan, the father, would stay in captivity. I mean, just think how horrendous even that is uh, in this in this terrible story. Um, as we said, this didn't happen, a last-minute uh, glitch. Uh, what was reported, essentially, was that Hamas didn't past the list of the first Israelis to be released, it is very clear that, that what they will try and do is, is sort of buy time and delay this as much as possible to get more and more uh, time on the truce, uh, to be honest. And the sense that this is a taste of things to come, that the games that will be played, the kind of psychological warfare, so you had the whole country braced for at last, some good news, some welcome news, ready for images of families reunited and for, for children in particular to be back home. And the whole country is sort of ready for that. It's this state of anxiety that has been persisting for 48 days, that there'll be some kind of break in that. And then told, no, you're not going to get that now. You're going to have to wait a bit longer. And you just feel as if at each stage of this, you've mentioned those, the adult male hostages, other hostages who will not get released in this first wave, and you feel the price will get higher and higher for them as this goes on. And lots of the people I've been speaking to this time were saying essentially, don't hold your breath for those others. Don't think that this is going to be, you know, next week or next day. For some of those hostages where there isn't the same sort of global compassionate demand for their immediate release, you know, as there is for children. This could really be strung out where the ratio that is demanded as this deal, the outline of it seems mm -hmm. to be that it was one Israeli hostage for every three mm -hmm. Palestinian yes. prisoners released. That price will get higher and higher and higher in both numbers of uh, prisoners released, but also in terms of days of 
cessation of uh, of hostilities so that Hamas has more time to regroup get its uh, get get itself back on track so i think we've just got a very small taste of some of in a way the pain that is to come yeah and and look <laughs> hamas can't win israel on the military level what it has is psychological warfare that's what it has and even the fact that they have not first of all to this moment released a list of the hostages, 236 in total. The fact that they're saying, Israel knows there are 40 children up to the age of 19 in captivity. Hamas says, we only know where 30 of them are. I mean, just think of that for a moment. So this is really going to be uh, um, stretched out. And and moreover, Hamas knows that the pressure on Israel, the minute the f- you know there's a ceasefire, will be immense to stop the war. And Israel, and, and it can, you know, even extend this and say, you know what, we're going to release 10 more, but give us four more days. And so Israel's going to have to, this is uncharted territory would be an understatement. We are in an area we have never, I don't know if any country has ever uh, met this kind, these kinds of dilemmas, these kinds of questions. Netanyahu in a press conference yesterday said, every extra day they want, I want 10 hostages. You know, it's just such a, I don't even, it's such a bizarre conversation. If you had told me two months ago that we'd be in this nightmare, I would, I wouldn't believe it. But, but this is where we are. And the, um, uh, that predicament that you've just set out there explains in a way why there was a discussion going on. I mean, the, you know, there is politics here as always, and there was a war cabinet. They were not immediately united on this issue. Mm -hmm. The argument went from one direction to another. And just again, the conversations I've had this week have sort of given me much more of an insight into that, the sense that, you know, you think in a way it's a no brainer. And in the end, of course, it has proved to be that where if, if there are children to be released, you've got to do whatever mm. it takes to do that. That has to be the number one priority. And people I've spoken to using the language of sacred obligation, you know, that there's mm. a almost a sort of moral slash religious compulsion to this. But there are people who were around that table saying that if we do this, first of all, it won't stop here. There'll be this constant back and forth. But also how the fear that some of the military planners have, which is whatever advances or progress the uh, Israeli military has gained could all be not just paused, but set back just to give a literal example, the uh, Hamas commanders and fi- you know fighters, the men of Hamas, are underground in these tunnels mm-hmm. where ventilation is an issue. Mm-hmm. About you know their ability to function is dependent on generators, which depend on fuel, and therefore they, uh, if there is a pause in which fuel and so on comes in, they literally have more oxygen, not just as metaphor mm-hmm. but as as uh, fact, and that could mean that people could move. For example, I mean. Uh, Sinwa, the main uh, commander of Hamas, people yes. they you know wonder if he's somewhere that's difficult for him, and this pause will give him time to move in mm-hmm. safety. You know, one of the demands was an end to the all anything flying over Gaza, including surveillance drones. Mm-hmm. So suddenly Israel will lose its eyes and ears on where the enemy is. Mm-hmm. There were good military reasons for worrying about this deal. Mm-hmm. But of course, in the end, if it's the, you know civilian human lives that are at stake, yeah. you 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 know the the Israeli military had very little option. And as you said, the government had to vote. Uh, there's one coalition party, Ben Gvir's party, that voted no. It's very easy to vote no when you know that the resolution will pass. So that's not actually uh, a dilemma. They were playing to their base, and the the concern they have and others have as well is the the thing that you actually noted. Of course, is that the war will have to end. Or there, there will be so much pressure put on Israel, uh, particularly. From the United States, they will have to uh, press the brakes. But this is, as you know, 
this is really a no-brainer if you have an opportunity at this point to, this is 48 days that children were held in captivity. If you can release them and release their mothers, where is the question? I mean, but again, we are sitting here, it's Thursday morning. We don't know if, if they will be released. So the, and, the first batch will be released. And what do you Friday make of this Saturday. idea? Because when you say, where's the question? There was a question. They did debate it and they de- there was delay. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, what's been reported is there was a deal some time ago and the government said no to that initially and you have gallant briefing the new york times that you know he was one of the ones calling for delay and good thing he did because now it's a better deal so at that point they weren't saying look we'll accept anything they were thinking it's worth waiting seven days seven more days for those children to be in captivity because in in the uh, the pressure on hamas led to a better deal what do you mean well there are conflicting reports about what hamas suggested to begin with there were reports that what they suggested was seven children. And to that, Israel said, no, we want more. We know there are more. And th- that the military pressure was helpful in in uh, arriving at that point. It should be mentioned, I think, that there is something of a, of a pivot generally in the Israeli government and the Israeli military, because what they thought to begin with is we have to crush Hamas. And I think it took them, maybe they were, you know, like the rest of Israeli society, quite shocked at the beginning. It took them a few days, maybe even more, to realize that if hostages don't come home, that is not a victory in the Israeli mindset. There are 236 hostages, there are children there, there are mothers, there are the elderly, they need to come home. And there is not going to be a victory here, if a victory is possible, without doing that. So there is something of a of a pivot, even in the the sort of realization uh, of the military and of the government that this has to be. At the beginning, they didn't even say that was the objective of the war. They said the objective is to crush Hamas, and now they're saying the objective is to crush Hamas and to bring back the the hostages. So, so that is what is happening now, and hopefully, hopefully, it will begin very soon. Just think of these families and what they're going through. They don't even know who is going to be released. So, so this has to happen. I hope it will happen in the next couple of days. And you say who's going to be released and what condition they will be yeah. in, and you mentioned before the Red Cross, one of the shocking facts of this whole saga is that at no point was there any Red Cross access, proof of life, the usual demands, humanitarian demands that are made in uh, a hostage mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, none of those conditions were honoured. I'm just uh, picking up your point about the what would look like a victory. And you're, mm-hmm. I think you're completely right that even if every last Hamas man was taken out, but the hostages were not returned that wouldn't look like victory Mm -hmm. but what would look i mean even if you put us let us say and hope that the hostage uh hostages are all brought home still there's a question of what would count as a victory and some of the again the people i've been speaking to political figures military figures really sort of counseling that the goal of total eradication or i think the word that the prime minister netanyahu is using is absolute defeat Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to imagine that. There are 30,000 estimated Hamas fighters. Um, so far, again, all estimated talk of around perhaps 5,000 who have been killed. That means a huge percentage who are not there. So even if Israel were, and I think it's a big if, to continue the fighting for weeks or months at, at the rate that's going on now, there would be a substantial you know, residue or remnant, better word, of Hamas military personnel who would be left. And in a way, from their point of view, if even a small percentage are left, Mm -hmm. 
they will say that's a victory. They will say defiance. We survived. Spoke to one figure who said that if, if Sinwa himself is still alive at the end of this mm-hmm. and they put out a picture, even if it's in from underground where he's flashing, you know, the V sign, in a way that means that they weren't defeated. So this demand for defeat is even before you get to the idea of can you extinguish an idea, put that aside, yeah. just militarily. The bar is set very, very high, mm-hmm. and you've mentioned obviously the hostages as well. There are many ways in which Hamas get away, can come out of this by saying we weren't defeated. Look, I, I think that at the end of the day, even anyone who says we have to erase Hamas completely realizes that it doesn't mean killing every last Nuhba commander Hamas uh, soldier or taking out every last gun in, in the Gaza Strip. What it means is that Hamas will no longer rule the Gaza Strip. That is one important aspect. And the second is that it won't be able to perpetrate this kind of massacre against Israel again. What needs to happen in that uh, area, I think, can happen. Um, but there are also questions about, as you said, Yechisenwal, probably this part of the uh, war will end and he will still be alive. It doesn't mean he's going to be alive in five years, but it does mean that he will probably still be alive. Now, this is a very long war. You don't, you you can't win it in a few weeks. It's just impossible. Just on your point about uh, Sinwa and his prospects, one figure close to uh, IDF thinking said to me that, uh, Think Munich, and he was referring to the 1972 Olympic Games and the massacre of Israeli Olympians there and how justice or retribution for those uh, killers was slow. And the Munich operation went on for years, I think, where one by one, methodically, they were found, they were tracked down. And so here, uh, and that was different because, of course, then it was, you know, they were scattered all over the world. Here they're right next door in Gaza, and yeah, I thought that was a very interesting uh, reference yeah. from uh, this military figure. They're not only in Gaza, some of them are living a luxurious oh, life in Qatar. So, in yeah. terms of the planners, but yeah. I think they were what he was saying was really, we are not going to stop until yeah. everybody involved, yeah. whether planning just remotely from Doha or elsewhere, or those on the ground, we will find them. And uh, but it means it's slower. So you just do see. I think you picked. You said that the the the, the war aim has been recalibrated, redefined as 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 it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, the wording. The exact wording used to acknowledge the centrality of the hostage release and also, in a way, reality that right. this might not be the total victory that some were talking about in the heat of the moment straight after the 7th of October. Yeah, and we have to add uh, one more thing that happened this week, and that is that the IDF is uncovering more and more proof uh, that, indeed, there are terror tunnels under uh, places like the Shifa Hospital. Obviously, some parts of Western media uh, genuinely either not believing it because how can lovely Hamas be doing these things? Or they know that if they do believe it, then they have to admit that they themselves were wrong. Um, but we are seeing that as well. I mean, the continued operation and 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 the fact that the IDF is furnishing this kind of uh, information. This, as I said uh, before, is going to be a very long war. I think another thing that happened this week that we should point out, I think it was International Children's Day this week. I'm correct about that. The UN obviously saying nothing about the fact that there are 40 children uh, in captivity and uh, just essentially the fact that um, the UN is showing no you know, condemnation, sympathy, or acknowledgement to what happened to Israeli women here that we are only now beginning to realize is something that I think um, is a de- 
depravity that we should uh, at least point out. There but, is this campaign which right. is really visible here on billboards mm-hmm. and screens where images of uh, women and the messages above which change are unbelievable, or unforgivable, or unsaid, or, or plays on the UN word, mm-hmm. and then the notion that somehow, you know, and references to the Me Too movement, that yes. there is, that it's Me Too unless mm-hmm. it's Israeli women. And this is a reference to the, the fact, you know, widely reported and documented that women uh, were victims of sexual violence and women are held hostage, uh, and that the, the complaint that is made is that the international bodies such as the UN have not raised, you know, the alarm or expressed outrage. And let's let's uh, be very clear on this. This is not important to them because these are Jews. This this would not happen unless you want to, to tell me otherwise to any other ethnic minority in the world. They either don't care or it's not important or they deny it happened. I don't know. But really the outrage here at least uh is is um you know, is very understandable in my opinion. We'll leave the UN to defend itself on that. I mean, I'm just thinking, as you said, if, you know, God forbid this had been some, uh, you know, a whole lot of Jewish hostages had been taken in Dagestan, say. Mm-hmm. Remember that scene when the storming of the airport and they were looking for Jews? You know, it's a question, um, what would the UN position be there? I think there's definitely a, a sense that if it's Israel, it kind of doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't want to see that hypothesis tested. We are talking about the United Nations. I have to say, one tweeted response from government spokesman Elon Levy, I thought was quite sharp, where he said, a reminder, the United Nations voted against Israel when it took Adolf Eichmann from Argentina and brought him here for trial. The UN were even against that. <laughs> so, you know, save it for when it yes. comes to the UN. I, I don't know actually the history of that, if they did do that or not, but it was a very sharp line. Very nice. So, sir, you have been here for a few days, and I'm really, really interested to hear a little bit about your experiences, how and then how it changed or didn't change your, you know, thinking before coming here. Well, it's been an incredibly intense few days. I mean, people know anyway that the nature of Israel is that, you know, one day here can feel like a week because you can pack so much in, you can travel one end of the country to the other, you can see so much. And life anyway, even in peacetime here, always does feel accelerated and more intense than uh, elsewhere. And so that has been true writ large this time. You know, I arrived at dawn on Monday, and within a few hours, I was in the south of Israel, right by the, uh, it's in the Gaza envelope, as it's called, but right by the uh, boundary with Gaza, in a car being shown round by a Vatika veteran of Kibbutz Kisufim, and his son. We dropped in for a while at Kibbutzberry, which as people will have seen on the, you know, on TV and elsewhere, lots of pictures from that place, which suffered huge losses on October mm-hmm. the 7th. And, you know, you can have- 86 murdered in yeah, Berry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the place is just sort of shattered. It's now almost like a military base. There's just lots of soldiers there, military hardware and equipment, and the people who had lived there are not there. And, as in the survivors have been yeah. moved out. We'll come, we'll, we'll come on to that because mm-hmm. I went to see some of them too. But the, um, you know, these burnt out buildings, the kindergarten is just a burnt, uh, wreckage of twisted metal and so on. And all around these poignant signs, you know, a child's bicycle twisted and bent, a, a, a mobility scooter for the elderly. Um, and just the wreckage of that. And that was powerful. 
uh, to see that and makes no, there is no substitute for seeing it yourself. But actually it was then going to Kibbutz Kisufim, which, which is even closer. I mean, less than one kilometer from Gaza. All the time you can just look and look into Gaza. You can see it right there. And it's a smaller kibbutz and it, it lost fewer people, around 16 people. But being shown around there by someone from there, mm. this had been his home, the man who showed me, showed me around, Benny Hassan. His family came here from Libya, uh, many years ago. He, this was his pride and joy. This place was his life. He had run the chicken houses there for 40 years. And we walk into his house and he walks me into the mamad, the safe room where he and his wife held off, uh, Hamas men for, I think, some 22 hours. Mm. They're not young. These people in their late sixties. He told me, and he was speaking as if in a state of shock still, as if it had happened a matter of hours ago, telling me how neither his wife nor he went to the bathroom. Their sort of bodies had seized up. How, um, he needed to talk about it. You could mm -hmm. see he needed to say it. And we, and, and showing me the bullet holes all through the house. I mean, it is a sort of miracle mm -hmm. that he and his wife li lived. Uh, he showed me the gas canisters outside the house that supply, you know, gas for cooking and how there's evidence there that the, uh, that Hamas tried to fire into them, even with rocket propelled grenades, which would have triggered the most enormous explosion, sending the temperatures to 600 degrees, 700 degrees. And that happened in a lot of places, mm -hmm. houses where people were burnt alive. A lot of it is very, very disturbing to hear. And so I say to people listening to this sort of, you know, brace yourself. Um, he described how just where they live, I saw right there are the sort of porter cabins, you know, those sort of, high, you know, temporary structures where the, uh, lookout officers, mainly young women who work, who for their job in the, for the army was to, watch the screens and monitor the border, how uh, they they were obviously seized and held. And he and his wife in their safe room, and I think this had something that had sort of broken him really, could hear what was happening to those women, the screams of those women. And he said to me that he hasn't slept for 45 days. He has not slept because he just hears those screams. We left that safe room. We walked around. He showed me the home of the 91-year-old neighbor who had been killed and her body had been dragged around the kibbutz, tied by a rope to a motorbike, and so on. I mean, there's more, but even now talking about it, I don't want to say more about it. I mean, to you read about these things, to hear them directly firsthand, to stand in the home of a man who had endured these things, you cannot but understand why there is a complete consensus here everybody i've spoken to left or right on this goal of mm. use which word of you words you want destroy eradicate defeat perhaps is the best word hamas they made the point several of the people i spoke to which is unless that happens obviously people like the hassan family cannot go back to kisufim mm. if they can't go back to live there if you can't live inside the boundaries of Israel proper, you know, the Israel that the world accepted uh, as a legitimate internationally recognized state, if you can't live in all of it, then in a way you can't live in any of it. Because the point was made was, if you say to the Hassan family, well, you can't go back to Kisufim, you'll have to now live further away near Beersheba. Then the people of Beersheba, they can't live there. They move further back so that, you know, they pull back further until eventually everyone's huddled in the middle in Tel Aviv. You know, it's not plausible. And therefore, that I think is why that argument has sort of 
even though I know there are thousands, hundreds of thousands on the streets saying just stop around the world rather in, you know, European capitals. Yeah. I do think that is why the likes of Joe Biden and heads of government do understand that this military goal, however you prosecute it, that's a different discussion, but that's why, because otherwise those people, what lives can they have? I, I just say one other thing, which was the next chapter of this was going then across the country to the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. to the hotels where, the residents of Berry, Kisufim, Sterot are evacuated. And that to me was actually extremely poignant, being mm -hmm. in a hotel and seeing a kibbutz. Shouldn't be in a hotel. You yeah. know, dogs, children, they're tr doing yeah. their best. They're playing in the lobby. You know, I walked in, there was a general discussion going on in the lobby. You know, people like me who spent time, lived on a kibbutzim as volunteers or elsewhere, will know there's the weekly discussion with a weekly meeting with the kibbutz members, yeah. decide their future. And there they were discussing the only one item on the agenda, where shall we live? Yeah. That was the question. After the hotel, where do we go? And there are 250,000 displaced people in this country, mm -hmm. internally displaced, moved from the north. We haven't even talked about the north because that's not safe from Hezbollah rockets. So all of it is, it does feel as if the, the country is reeling, it's in a state of shock, and everybody you encounter feels there has to be an answer to this, because otherwise, as you, and I thought of the words you said in our very first conversation after October 7th, you said the question is, can we live here? It's that big a question, and in a way, put differently by different people, that was the question. You know, First of all, I'm very moved by what you're describing, and I think it's it's really important that you came here and that you saw it um, on so many levels. You know, not only as a as a journalist or someone involved with Israel so deeply, but also as just as Jonathan. Just I'm, I'm you know, I, I think it's so important. It's very painful to watch uh, up close. It has been very painful for the past couple of weeks because I always I sort of realize that even if we Israelis, we Jews, we've been through some tough times. And we'll be okay, but we will forever walk uh, with shattered glass inside us. I mean, th that is what I feel, that some of the pain will never be over. You know, some of the, the things and the, the sounds that these people have heard and experienced and all of us have it was, it will be very difficult to silence. Um, you mentioned the lookout soldiers. That is one of the tragedies of this, this whole, massacre of October 7th. These are young, particularly women soldiers who were on the border. Their job was to look at what was happening on the border to protect uh, the uh, communities on the border. And they were saying to their commanders for weeks and for months, we are seeing irregularities. We are seeing Hamas on the border. They're doing something. They're organizing something. And they weren't listened to for all kinds of reasons. And we know now that the intelligence was there. The information was there. It wasn't interpreted correctly. But these women not only saw it, they warned that this will happen and they paid with their lives. And this is such a terrible tragedy. These are 18 and 19-year-old women um, in, in different bases along the, the Gazan envelope. So, you know, that is, that is part of it. I think that what I was trying to say uh, to you for many weeks, and I, I couldn't get it right, and I'm probably not going to get it right now either. It wasn't to you directly, but kind of to the world, was sort of our that we felt like this is a singular, ultimate evil. This is a massacre. Um, that should be recognized and acknowledged and talked about as such. And the world so quickly moved on to both sides of the story are. 
And when we hear both sides of the story are, what we are actually hearing is, so Adolf Eichmann, let's hear what you think about the Holocaust. And that is what was so, I think, jarring for us, was that feeling like, wait, there aren't two sides to this. We were massacred. This happened to us. Let's talk about that. And not what the, the rest of the world wanted to talk about very instantly, again, even before Israel uh, started its operations in, in Gaza. So, you know, those are my two cents on what has been happening here. I think Israel is very, very different from the Israel you met when you were here in April. Um, yes, that's definitely true. It is a it is a changed country, and you do feel that. It is quite true that what I, you see here is a different kind of war mm -hmm. from what you would see watching uh, media coverage anywhere else in the world, um, partly because of the emotion involved, but also just literally in terms of what people are seeing. So you put the TV on here, and it is about Israel and its grief. And obviously, if you watch in London on the BBC or in New York on CNN and so on, you're seeing pictures of and I think the estimate is now over 14,000 killed in Gaza. That does not really feature strongly um, in most in the coverage here or in the conversations here when I have them because people think, yeah, we've got to do what we've got to do. And the if the price is that high, that's because Hamas has embedded itself in a civilian population. They knew what they were bringing down on their heads. There's very little conversation about that. And there is a poignant dimension to that. When I very tentatively mentioned this to the people of the kibbutz who are now in that hotel in the Dead Sea. And I said, look, people who will be reading what I eventually write about this will be thinking they feel very sympathetic to what you've gone through, that I, would, I said. But they'll immediately think, but what about the 14,000 in Gaza? And one of the people I spoke to said, there were people on our kibbutz who would have thought like you and would have thought like that, but they're all dead. That there were peaceniks in the South, particularly, it was very present, you know, with the name that has become sort of totemic as this woman, Vivian Silva, mm -hmm. tremendous peace activist from Kibbutzberry, who at first was thought to have been taken hostage and then it turned out that she'd been murdered and it took them that long to identify the body. The people who would have spoken out for the humanitarian uh, plight with compassion for Gazans, who would have said there are two sides here, who would have said, yes, in our pain, we mustn't forget the pain of the others, they're not here, is what several people said to me. And it was it, it's obviously not literally true that every peacenik was murdered, but the point was that voice has been sort of stilled. Mm -hmm. We can't think like that. Somebody else said to me very candidly, you know, we only have room as it were, right now, mm -hmm. for our pain. That's what we've got, or we've got room for. I think people outside will see it differently, but that is definitely how it looks here. I think it, we should just, you know, mention as well. I think it was very, you know, you probably you've got used to it now. Every billboard, every poster, every street corner has these signs. One people, we're united. We will succeed. We will triumph. Incredibly poignant sign I have only seen once which was in uh, the South, which was, we are all hostages, yeah. which I thought was a very powerful message because yes. in a way the whole country is holding its breath and is held hostage by this situation. So um, these are all things that you can you know, understand, explain, but once you see them and you're here, you realize that this is what, you know, and probably other countries who've been at war, that's what it's like. They, they live through the war and fight it from their own point of view and worried about their own people because they're in it. They're not outside it. And if you mention the billboards, I mean, there are so many billboards of the pictures of the hostages 
And anyone listening to us Everywhere. outside Israel, just imagine trying to explain that to your very young children who ask you, what is this story and what do you mean? Why are there children on this poster? Well, I do. Um, I mean, on that, that's, I mean, I don't know how you have had to do that, but I have to say one thing that struck me walking along uh, and in just along a highway in Tel Aviv and I suddenly realized, oh, no one's torn these down. Yeah. <laughs> because if you're in Paris or London or New York and you see those posters, they're the same format mm -hmm. all over the world. If there's one, then next to it on either side are the two that were there and have been ripped down. Yeah. No one's doing that here. Uh, just one point as well on your, to your point about the women who weren't listened to. And somebody said to me, and it's a phrase in Hebrew, you'll know it, but about the, you know, the set, the brain is shown on the stripes you're, you wear. In other words, you're listened to. The degree of deference mm -hmm. you're given is towards your rank. Um, and that's something that is going to have to be looked at again because it yes. was people of the lower ranks, younger, as you say, women who were in a way were sounding the alarm. They weren't listened to the, the, the point about the failure, uh, that is, comes up all the time. And the both things are true. There is absolute iron determination to, you know, for this military operation to succeed and for Hamas to not be able to be rendered incapable of mounting such a defeat. But we should not uh, uh, obscure the fact that everybody I spoke to, pretty well, not everyone, because I spoke to some people from the right, but there is a cold fury towards this government um, mm -hmm. for the failure on the day for the ignoring of the evidence, but also for the, its um, absence in the weeks since. I mean, amazing stories that are coming of civil society filling the vacuum. You know, I looked around this kibbutz, the, the hotel that is now the kibbutz. There's a whole gun kindergarten equipped with children's equipment and books and toys. And I said, where did all this come from? This is obviously pretty quick. And they said it was immediate. It was from donors. It was from volunteers. And uh, lots and lots of social needs have been met. You know, the woman I was sp speaking to was wearing clothes that had been given to her because she left the kibbutz with nothing in her mm. pajamas, she said. Um, civil society stepped up, but government has failed these mm -hmm. people. And that, uh, and uh, people put a lot of blame on Netanyahu himself and on his ministers, but they also talk about the kind of institutions of the state. A lot of people say we have to win this war, but then we almost have to rebuild the country. People talking about reset, reboot, rebuild. I heard these words a lot. Top to bottom, big in, in people talking unexpectedly, figures from the right talking about, well, yeah, we do need a constitution. We need to right ourselves after mm -hmm. this. And some even say maybe it's an opportunity. There are a whole lot of things we've needed to put right. They said, one said to me, maybe it'll be like 1945 in your country. You know, Britain mm -hmm. built its health service and everything after. Maybe we'll do a whole lot of social things we've been needing to do in the aftermath of this war because everything is up for grabs because everything failed so badly. Yes, everything failed so badly. I think you're right about the cold rage against the government. By the way, I think there will be a lot of rage targeted at the IDF and especially the intelligence parts of it, what they knew, what they didn't know. All of that is sort of being held back right now because Israel is at war. And all of it will come, I think, crashing down on on all of us the day the day after we talked a lot about Eretz Nederet in our in our programs. We also interviewed the um, executive executive producer Muli Segev a few weeks ago. Listen, it's a difficult thing to do satire during a war. One of their most brilliant skits was on a few days ago, in which 
uh, Golda Meir comes back to talk to Netanyahu and thanking him for taking away her title as uh, the prime minister responsible for the worst failure in Israel's history. It's it's quite a, it's in Hebrew, not in English. They've been doing a few of the English ones as well. And he says to her, don't worry, Golda, I'll blame the army. And she says, I tried that. Been there, um, done that. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, I, 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 I think that we are going to see, we're seeing the beginning of it in the sort of polls. We had a poll a week ago say, seeing Netanyahu completely nosediving in the polls uh, and Benny Gantz soaring. It's a very different country now. I think it's going to be a very different country uh, in, a few, in a few months, definitely. That sketch, it is, it is great. And, um, the second, uh, great performance of Golda Meir in a year. <laughs> and the, the first one was for what was thought to be the big event of 2023, which was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. But like the sketch says, uh, now surpassed by what happened, um, straight afterwards. But I do recommend people, well, maybe we'll put a link in the we'll, show notes so that people yep. can have a look at that sketch. So we are recording, as you mentioned before, on Thursday. We are waiting for another countdown for what we hope will be a hostage release. By the time people hear this, it could be underway. I mean, how is that going to play out, do you think, emotionally, psychologically for Israelis? Are they going to think about the ones who are coming out, or are they going to be obsessed with the ones who are not coming out? How does it play out, Yoni? I mean, I've been trying to imagine this because obviously, you know, preparing emotionally as an Israeli, but also preparing emotionally as someone who will anchor that uh, broadcast. Um, it's going to be a mixed bag of emotions, to be honest. First of all, I think just seeing, finally seeing children coming home uh, is going to be such a happy moment um, with their mothers. But just to imagine, I mean, what they went through what they know about what happened on October 7th, who of their families survived. They can't go home because their home is still a military zone that they can't live in. It's too dangerous. I mean, just think of all of that. And of the fact that even if we do go through with this and there are 50 hostages that come back, there are still 186 hostages held by Hamas. So it's going to be very much, I think, uh, uh, happy day even with exhilarating moments but also a heartbreaking day like every single day has been in this country since october 7th well we are now in the countdown for that hostage release by the time people hear this we hope it will uh, have happened or be happening be underway and we'll be on the podcast to talk about it we won't be here in the same room or we won't be in the same country next week will we but we will be on unholy to talk it all through we will indeed. You decided to return home, which is strange, but that is the decision you made. So we will <laughs> we will see each other uh, again through a computer screen. Uh, but we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat, also Efrat Meron and Tomer Wolf. And indeed, we shall meet next week. See you then. See you. 